Hey, Jason. Hey, Juan, how are you? Good. I'm uh, pleased to be here with you, uh, Jason, to present uh, Panoptic's third out of three part series on radicalization ideology. And in today's episode, uh, we're going to address, uh, for those who've been following our first two episodes, uh, in this one, we're going to address the problem of grounding ideology in some normative framework. Uh, thin notions of the good versus thick notions of the good versus generalizable interests, applications of narrative framing to organizing, branding, change management, and other practical areas. Uh, So here we wrap kind of our discussion and get into some of this perhaps more uh, general terrain where we're talking about how ideology is linked to this difficulty of really grounding a kind of perhaps a thick notion of the good in a complex society. So lots lots of interesting stuff uh, in our episode today. Yeah, I think it really comes full circle. And what's been really great about this series, Juan, is that I think we've really gone deep into sociological theory uh, and then also looked at some of the more immediately applicable practical sides of this as well. So I think this is a good example of what we really try to do here at panoptic so yeah more to follow there more to yep more to follow uh so before we get into it uh just again i want to quickly plug uh our social media so the best way for you to keep track of what's going on with us uh is by checking out our instagram uh you can follow us on instagram at panoptic.pod also twitter is a good place panoptic pod and then our website, www.panopticpod.com. And you can subscribe through email there. All those places, uh, we'll just give you a heads up on uh, when we're planning to put out uh, episodes, supplementary episodes, and uh, other things we've got going on. So just make sure to uh, keep track of uh, what we're putting out. And then finally, I uh, want to, again, uh, quickly p- uh, plug our Patreon Uh, We've been working on various tiers to add additional value to your listening and overarching panoptic experience. So you can put in different sums of money to get different perks. And we're continuing to add to this so we can provide more value to you. So, I mean, if there's anything that you'd like to see from us that would be additional work, but you think it'd be uh, worth worth, uh, everyone's while, let us know. We'll look into it and see if if it's feasible. Some of the things uh, we've been doing and we're hoping to do more of our uh, periodic newsletter where we're going to recommend readings that we've been looking at, uh, some topical meanderings and responses to listener feedback. And then also we're going to continue doing these personal case study submissions where we react to your topical stories and offer our quote unquote professional advice. so that's always fun. We hope you enjoyed the last one that we put out. So looking forward to doing more of that. And of course, if you're a patron, you're going to get priority. We'll address your stories first. And then a few other perks that we're looking at uh, building out as well. So yeah, please check out our Patreon. And uh, other than that, uh, I think we're ready to get into it. Anything else, Juan? No, please uh, please check us out. On As Jason was saying, we are always... Excited to hear from new listeners uh, and to see that there's interest in the podcast, uh, and are looking forward to these new uh, these new add-ons for uh, if you want for those who are interested in hearing a little more from us. Uh, 
uh, maybe in slightly different formats. But uh, uh, looking forward to to feedback on this on this last part on our episode on radicalization ideology, which was a lot of fun to do. All right, uh, let's get into it. Sounds good. The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. I would say that the notion of the kind of the model of diagnostic, prognostic, motivational is more focused on the the uh, functional dimensions of ideology. Whereas we, if we look at a more a general framework of ideology, it has to do with the large the, that deeper seated and more widespread horizon of of experience that is formed out of a complex of um, statements about the world that we are already socialized into from very early into their into our life you know from the moment we were born and we were able to start looking into our mother's eyes uh, or father's eyes so it sounds like and maybe this won't be the most um satisfying answer for listeners i think we often fall into the uh, into that trap but we're kind of left uh having to accept that ideology is a basic tenet of individuation that we are all nested in some kind of ideological superstructure right and then there are ideological substructures as well within our groups and um uh or the organizations in which we uh work and socialize and then if we are in a situation where we have to cast some other, I mean, we see things that feel viscerally bad and we want to categorize them as bad reliably. Now, in the case where those bad things seem to have an ideological basis, um, often, you know, at the policy level, at least we see those types of things categorized as extremism or uh, radicalism. And it sounds like from a Habermasian standpoint, the only way for us to reliably do that um, would be by um, deferring to generalizable interests, you know, getting even lower than the notion of, uh, of a, the good, of having yeah. some uh, basic values or um, British values or American values, as some of the, the CVE specialists talk about them. But mm-hmm. something even more general than that, <clears throat> that would be so obviously antithetical to the generalizable interests of any society that it would be anti-cultural or, um, or just anti-generalizable interest, I guess you would call it. And then that would be your classification of radical. Is that, is that an accurate summarization yeah. of, of the Habermasian position here? To an extent, and I think there's something that we'd have to leave for another episode and discuss more at length, which has to do with uh, a second dimension of this question, which is which is the historical one, um, and this idea that 
uh, I think Habermas would probably argue that historically, because human beings uh, are immersed in language and are language-using beings, and because uh, they can learn, they're capable of learning, that uh, generalizable interest in a liberal democratic in a liberal democratic context, in a way, uh, demarcate a moment of evolutionary change uh, between societies that are where there was no conception or where the conception of generalizable interest was distorted uh, through hierarchy demarcations. And let me give you an example. Let's say. Uh, ancient Greek society, right, where there were women and slaves, but they had no conception of citizenship, so that there was a class of citizens who were considered I I equals who could enter the public sphere and, and partake in public life and in freedom, but there was there was a whole subset of people, slaves and women, who were considered uh, just above animals, basically, because they were they were uh, confined to the home and the home economy and farming the home in the home and producing basically the subsist the subsistence elements of life and they were not political creatures therefore um, they were not considered fully human in a sense uh, this is a society which was hierarchical and which a whole class of people did not uh, partake in sort of freedom right in a liberal 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 democratic context um it you know this this kind of hierarchical framing of society becomes uh untenable outs uh, they would say outside uh, someone like Habermas would say would say with the, with the learning process through which society has developed or with societies have developed so that what's considered a generalizable interest or then the idea of a generalizable interest in a post-kantian world is one that takes into consideration this notion of the individual and the autonomy as a as a, something that we is something that we uh, ground our political frameworks around, um, so that you know perhaps if we accept this or not, and then there are problems with this for sure. If we do accept this generalized notion, uh, liberal democratic societies in a, in a sense represent a kind of evolutionary advance in the way we organize our relations uh, and that they are legitimate precisely because they do orient people around us not a thick notion of the good which would include an in-group and an out-group but but around generalizable interests which don't necessarily demand of people that they that they um, share a thick notion of the good again this is a thick notion of the good, not let's say a thin notion of the good, which maybe we could say is like just a general idea that people should be able to develop their own thick notion of the good on their very own terms. Uh, so, you know, this talks, this gets at some very core political philosophy arguments that have been going on for a long time. But perhaps this idea of generalizable interests helps us get go to historical moments in time and talk about uh, how ideological theology works. So... Let's you know any point in history where you don't have an ideological or operational framework, where humans are considered by their very nature of existing as uh, benefactories of rights, uh, beneficiaries of rights, uh, just because they're human beings, you know, is one in which an ideology 
uh, operates that for some reason is able to designate some people as not necessarily uh, beneficiaries of right, whether because they're quote unquote don't have a soul, uh, don't have reason, uh, don't have the same language, and so forth, right? So you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the perhaps ideologies of imperial powers, uh, European colonial and imperial powers, was that the subjects, uh, their subjects were in a, in a stage of childhood, right? They were children, they were not as reasonable, therefore they had to sort of be, they had to be like led to, to being fully modern and civilized before they could kind of be given freedoms. This was a kind of apologetics for imperialism and colonialism. An ideological framework that allows for a polity to therefore create a whole subset and class of, of subordinate people. Uh, something we would find completely illegitimate. I think most many of us would find completely legitimate nowadays. But a perfect example of an, how an ideology and a and a way of describing people because of their specific forms of life, let's as let's say not civilized, allows for another group of people to then say, "Oh well, therefore they they don't really deserve political freedom, and we have to kind of give them to uh, we have to kind of lead them." And it's really at the end of the day a cover for a kind of exploitation and and the use of these people as workforces and. And the the pillaring the pillaging of their land, uh, so a long digression, Jason, to sort of say I think there's I think there's I think this notion of legend, uh, if we look at the historical uh, dimension of the human species and its history, and we think about ideology, then we start then we start talking about questions of like well. Um, even if we don't subscribe to a notion of a thick way of looking at the good as a way of organizing human relations, and nonetheless, don't we find? Uh, do we find that uh, that uh, that uh, there can we can ground a sort of notion of actively produced generalizable interests uh, in in a, let's say a liberal democratic framework that. Uh, that would respect a multitude of, let's say, uh, notions of the good, and therefore ideologies that converge in a sort of like uh, political ideology, which is more about things like uh, we're going to be, we're going to, we we are going to be deferent to the law, let's say, instead of as a way of relating to each other, uh, not legislating what people believe, not legislating what they do, but legislating whether they are in accord with the law, which supposedly regulates people in line with some kind of general universal interest. Uh, still very still very controversial questions sometimes in in some disciplines, but but you see how these these are problems that are interrelated. You know, I think I still struggle with, you know, what is the cutoff between a thin notion of the good and a thick notion of the good? And I'm sure there are some compelling answers to this. In either case you know if we're going to put forth some generalizable interest which is not supposedly linked to a thick notion of the good then what is it that makes this generalizable interest something that people should generally want to uphold and is it just something that is self-evident or a priori in a Kantian sense mm -hmm. yeah how do we get there and I think I, I might have an answer to that question if we take more of an existential route and maybe I will bring up Camus because I mentioned yeah. that I have been wanting to bring up Camus, that you could even start from a, a purely absurdist view of the world, meaning that um, it's an observation that 
human beings, and this might get into, um, you know, bump up against a critique of human nature, but essentially a, a statement that humans generally want some kind of unifying absolute truth. But when they try to reason their way to that absolute truth, their reason contradicts itself and breaks down. And then when that happens, it results in a state of pure meaninglessness and potentially cognitive opening even. So it's just this, uh, it's an identity crisis. And then you, you run up against several choices. Why should I continue to exist? And uh, from Camus' perspective, the realization of the absurd is one of the core uh, drivers of suicide. If you can't uh, reconcile your existence with its apparent meaninglessness, then why live, right? So, um, but yeah. then there are other ideological mechanisms, even like religion that can help you take a leap of faith and uh, avoid the absurd and go on living in kind of a deluded state. The solution that he prescribes is more of a, well, you should just be happy. And of course, that's easier said than done. But in your happiness, uh, you kind of revolt against the absurd. It's kind of you saying that um, in spite of the suffering that is inherent in this world, I'm going to be happy. So it's a kind of uh, revolution. And there's something romantic and poetic about that that I enjoy. But out of that, you can develop a kind of ethic that, say, that says people should have the space to create meaning for themselves. Otherwise, if they can't create meaning for themselves, then there's no space to exist. There's no justification for existing. So at least people have to have space to create meaning and happiness for themselves. And out of that, I wonder if that is a justifiable thin notion of the good or even a generalizable interest, whereas where you have groups that run up against that that are not tolerant of someone's space to create meaning for themselves or to be happy. So I wonder if, if that is, is one way of grounding this <clears throat> without having to um, think about a generalizable interest as something that is just self-evident or a priori or fall into some circular logic trap, right? Yeah, I mean, I th it, perhaps. And I think we'd, it'd be interesting to look at some of the literature and debates between, let's say, someone like Charles Taylor and... Habermas, let's say, and, and the way that they argue about specifically about this point of the thick notion of the good as a grounding for political life. Because I think someone like, because I think the, the perhaps where the point of difference between these two is that one emphasizes a kind of existential dimension of, uh, human that a human condition in which people are in which we exist as as human beings and that the political problem becomes then in a kind of non-thick non-thick notion of the good as a grounding for political life becomes a question of how to create political communities where uh where autonomy is maximized and in a sense the autonomy of individuals is balanced um, so that then people can produce their own meaning, produce their own notions of what is a good life without having that, in a sense, fostered upon them. As 
if we look at that from the perspective of the Enlightenment project, this is just another sort of step of this notion that it, people are not bound by what comes before, but they are able to produce based on their own kind of uh, understandings and and critical perspectives, their own ideas of how to lead their lives and direct their lives. Uh, while at the same time acknowledging that they're mired in societies and historical communities and that they're not independent, that they're dependent on others and I must cooperate with them, right? So there's this two dimen- there's two dimensions, cooperation and self-directing of one's life, which have to be sort of coordinated and become really abstract. Then the political problem becomes one of like a processual uh, and ever-constant production of uh, a historical form of life which respects autonomy for its own sake. Uh, almost as the very and only foundation, maybe the one sort of somewhat thick notion of the good. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm missing something there. Whereas a thick notion of the good says, "Hey, well, you know, we have to, we have to tie our, we have to be more concrete. It has to be there has to be a sense of identity, uh, whether it's tied to a land, into a language, into a sort of practices and rituals that we can sort of point to that bind the political community. Even even if these are at the end of the day." Uh, symbolized and held at the at the level of let's say the political community and its and its rituals, we need something that binds it more than sort of like just some kind of abstract notion of of the law and of and of relationship to the law and a continual constructive legal foundation for political life through which people would be actively constructing the sense of what it means to live together even though they're not bound by any kind of thick notion of the good. I think. I think that's a difficult question. Question questions to answer, and we'd have to continue talking about that, Jason. But but I but it does revolve around this question of generalizable interests. And to what extent can any interest be generalizable? Right. Right. Uh, perhaps that's where the moral dimension of let's say Habermas critique lies. For him, a generalizable interest is one at the end of the day that that is able to respect both the fact that we are uh, we are we must collaborate to survive and to take care of each other, but we must also find ways to, but we must also, there must be way, room must be made for the autonomy of the individual to direct their own life as much as possible within the boundaries of a collaborating community. So you can see how it becomes very abstract for him, but it also becomes kind of that moral insight, um, which if we look at it as a, as a rod for measuring historical processes, then becomes a kind of a utopian horizon, which we never really ever completely arrive at but which against which we measure history and historical moments uh and even historical communities right and even look at maybe historical communities as distorted expressions of this kind of like yearning to not only have a uh, collaboration and freedom right um we could even you know we could look at uh our, our different radical ends of the spectrum as sometimes distorted yearnings for this um, even the most distorted, let's say, racist uh, ideologies at the end of the day have their kind of their horizon utopian point in this idea of a collective that is kind of unified, right? Where people would, wouldn't have the problem of the other, that person who is different, who has a different language, who has a different skin color and creates, quote unquote, the political problem, right, of the enemy. Right, so, so uh, that's a distorted expression of this yearning for a community that's unified, organic, collaborating, and 
well, much less in that that perspective kind of gives up the notion of individual of the individual, and, and this is this is kind of how, how people have ex- kind of described fascism, right? Fascism is this re- response uh, where, in a sense, the individual is asked to give up individuality to merge with the community completely, and efface their idea of the of the individual in order to, to form the perfectly organic community. But for that to happen, there must be the the, the sort of other must be must be expelled the one who creates the problem supposedly uh why the community can't be organic completely unified right so racism there is tied with this yearning for a totally organic community but it for us it's an apparent an abhorrent and not legitimate response because it's based on it's based on the notion of the good where where one whole subsection of humanity is sort of the scapegoat so you, so that's you know that's generalized interest is a very is a question that is very a flashpoint, I think, for thinking about these questions of ideology. Any kind of system that is going to put emphasis on the or value system that's going to put emphasis on the individual, you know, how do you even how do you identify what the individual even is without being able to compare it to something else? And I think this gets us back to the importance of frame alignment in ideological processes and individuation, because when we individuate, we're often individuating through comparing to other things. And sometimes as part of that process, we're villainizing so we can cast ourselves as the good guy, right? Or we can justify our um, way of being in the world. So mm-hmm. I wonder if this like strong emphasis on the one in certain political structures throughout history lends itself to a kind of otherizing of groups that... Um, don't uh, comply with our way of life. Yeah, if if we frame the problem, the political problem is that tension between the individual and collaboration, between freedom and autonomy, and the need for a social life uh, to collaborate, and at the same time to respect that it, you know this kind of ever going tension. Uh, then any kind of political ideology which emphasizes purely the individual side of that equation. I think one of the perfect examples is neoliberalism, uh, which is a kind of, again, the word itself is, words explain a lot, uh, right? So traditional traditional liberalism uh, is one thing, but neoliberalism kind of like radicalizes this notion that, uh, that the individual is a kind of calculation machine for cost-benefit analysis, and that people will primordially operate in reality in that way, and that the market itself is a perfect mechanism for balancing out, uh, uh, for for balancing out uh, systems and for getting them to a sort of harmony, and that systems always tend towards harmony, uh, you know, market systems always tend towards harmony because they're based on the kind of uh, uh, decentralized acts of a bunch of individuals acting in their particular interests. Um, but this is a very abstract framework, which which really, you know, becomes almost so detached from reality that it becomes kind of ideology in the bad sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? The way, when, the way it's used in parliaments, where it becomes sort of like a hardened ideology where a sort of set of statements about not only what people are like and how they operate and how they think and reason and how reality works and how a market work then becomes a whole operational framework for policy and for 
therefore sort of like we're saying that you know government is always evil government is always inefficient government can never do anything right and government was always reduced everything must be privatized everything must become competition the market must be spread to as many you know if there were previously spheres of the of of civic life which were somewhat somewhat shielded from market mechanisms like education even that must be open to market frameworks uh because they're always more efficient and 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 efficiency is what we need let's say as an as a value uh, operating in something like education rather than let's say spaces for slow thinking for slow learning and things like that uh, so you could see how how one ideology that emphasizes individualism above all other things and particularly the united states i think i think you know this is obviously something that runs a current through our through our history uh, this kind of emphasis on the rugged individual uh it's an operational ideology, right? And it's based on a set of statements about reality, and it has some truth to it for sure. But uh, but it also can be critiqued in terms of whether it whether it manages then to allow for the production of a polity based on generalizable interests, right? Whose interests are being are being are being defended, or or in a sense uh, are being uh, forwarded or mobilized when we emphasize purely this notion that we're individuals and should focus simply on our personal interests and forget about you know <laughs> cooperation of any sort right yeah on the uh, topic of neoliberalism maybe that's a good place for us to shift into kind of more of a broader um, reflection on ideology and organizations and getting back to some more practical insights for um, uses and applications of ideology. And I wanted to tell this story. I think you were uh, there, Juan, when this happened with our uh, mm -hmm. previous company. The chairman of uh, the company, uh, it'll remain nameless, I, I guess, unless unless you, you <laughs> care to <laughs> divulge the name of the company. You can, you can just Google us and find out who it was if you want. But um, one day they sent out a mass email about our corporate values. And as part of the email, the chairman uh, claimed that we were a Christian company, kind of out of the blue. And meanwhile, I was sitting beside someone who identified as Muslim and someone else who identified as non-religious. And the three of us were equally flabbergasted by the tone deafness of the chairman's message. And it's no wonder that this company turned out to be a very change in agile organization, meaning it was neither structured nor cultured to support change. What what happened with this company? So we went through a a peculiar merger at one point, and we in the beginning we were a small security company ran by some loudmouth former Blackwater mercenaries, and the uh, the owners decided to merge this company with a large architectural and design company comprised of soft-spoken career staffers who stayed silent in their cubicles. And the purpose of the merger was never clearly communicated. The incentives were never established to encourage communication between business groups and support cross-selling. And I remember uh, we were at the holiday party one year, and the two parts of the firm, right after the merger, they isolated themselves in different sections of the ballroom. It was a remarkably awkward situation and kind of helped set expectations for the future of the merged company. From the staff perspective, you know, what was the with them, the what's in it for me? 
Why force these two groups to combine? How did the merger differentiate and grow the company? Ultimately, this was a failed change initiative. The business didn't grow, and eventually the owners decided to split the two companies. Again, you know, return them to their normal, uh, to their previous state. So culture change is really hard. And there are recent studies that suggest culture change fails 70% of the time. What failure means is different depending on how you, uh, or who, who you ask. There isn't really, uh, are, there aren't rigorous scientific standards for these, this kind of research, uh, which is one of Paul Gibbons uh, criticisms of the change management field in general. But basically we can say a lot of the time when you're trying to change culture, you're going to run into obstacles and the organization probably isn't going to reap the full return on investment that they were hoping to collect. So according to uh, these researchers of Devin uh, Proudfoot at Cornell and Aaron Kay at Duke, this is from a a Forbes article I found. They say that uh, for people to embrace difficult organizational change, uh, they need to understand how they, the company and society will benefit. Too often, leaders present culture change in broad terms that never get developed into measurable goals. Without these, it is hard for many people to see the benefit statement of culture change. A strategically relevant culture is vital. So that's the end of the quotation. I think this is a really great encapsulation of the challenges associated with culture change and kind of gets into the um, importance of an of ideology as well. I mean, these these observations are highly applicable to the case of our former employer, Juan, who gave zero attempt to build a strategically relevant integrated culture and case for change. You know, a change agile company needs to maintain a brand, a corporate narrative that resonates with the social ideological superstructure to attract and retain labor and avoid reputational and even legal challenges. So out of the blue classifying your company as Christian, like our former employer did, particularly when many of your employees don't identify as Christian, is highly problematic and alienating. So this kind of behavior is a surefire way to make your stakeholders feel that you don't have their backs. In 21st century capitalism, firms face the unique challenge of needing to motivate stakeholders at their deepest centers. So today's workforce makes less in wages and carries more in debt than previous generations. And of course, now we're ridiculously um, underemployed because of the COVID-19 situation. Research on goal setting suggests that financial incentives are more effective to increase performance, but where financial incentives are chronically lacking, firms need to do more to incentivize performance. And workers themselves are craving. They need to be told compelling stories, that they are a part of something noble and bigger than themselves, to feel that their jobs are worthwhile and that they belong. So perhaps this explains the recent emergence of so-called conscientious or benevolent capitalism, which is like industry's loosely organized attempt to reframe capitalism as socially conscious, where business executives signal their dedication to meeting public demands for corporate responsibility, sustainability, local investment, and so on. So I don't mean to suggest that the movement is some kind of sham. In specific cases, it might be. But for me, Not only is it right for companies to enact socially conscious policies, but also this can make good business sense depending on the company type and its customers. That aside, we might argue that conscientious or benevolent capitalism is the narrative or ideological frame alignment that 21st century meritocratic labor requires to justify continuous hyper-competitive work in spite of lower wages and higher debt. 
And the onus of framing one's brand as conscientious or benevolent in a way that resonates with the stakeholders squarely falls on the shoulders of our business leaders. So if you want to create a change agile organization, you might want to consider how you are going to align your brand to the social ideological superstructure. What stories are you going to tell your stakeholders to make them feel like they belong, like they have purpose as leaders within your organization, or even as consumers of your products or services? Bringing it full circle, your narrative should be short, clear, and compelling, including diagnostic, prognostic, and motivational components to communicate your vision and call to action. So this I submit to you is one of the ways in which you, the listener, can leverage the study of social movements and radicalization to affect change in your groups and organizations. You know, I think, I think a general framework of ideology is very useful as a way of thinking about the way and any narrative um, any kind of set of ideas put in narrative form, a story, um, have to to be effective in any way, shape, or form. They do have to orient themselves to generalizable interests, and they have to do so by touching upon uh, three dimensions. Their narrative as it relates to a diagnosis of the way reality is, right? Linking up with, with this diagnosis, prognosis, uh, a prognosis about the way that, given reality, people should relate to each other and cooperate. And what are the norms through which they should cooperate? And a uh, notion of what then constitutes the right identity, the authentic way of expressing oneself, and therefore the right, uh, what kind of elements uh, motivate the individual uh, or should motivate the individual. Uh, to act in any specific context. So you, we can see how there is a mapping between these two, right? Uh, where the diagnostic relates to this idea of statements about reality, the prognostic statements about society and social relations and the, and the normative or the, the way that people should relate, and uh, motivational relates to this idea of identity and the self and the subject and the individual, right? So... But the question is that that narrative itself must have has, has must be able to stand scrutiny in three three dimensions. Any kind of narrative that you put forward has to be able to have be stand up to scrutiny not only in what it says about reality, what statements it makes about what's legitimate, and what it says about identity and what are the correct ways of expressing oneself or so forth. Because if it a lot it runs afoul of any of these. Um, it's per, if it's perceived by any kind of uh, agent as n as sort of like not really expressing legitimate or res or uh, in a sense generalizable interests, it will be by at least by a large faction of the population will be rejected. Right. Um, this is speaking apart from let's say radical radicalization. Uh, this I think makes it extremely hard right now. Uh, it opens up, I think, the political question, which I think is a limitation of, of just looking at this from the perspective of companies, because at the end of the day, in the context of uh, a generation like ours that is, uh, that is indebted and also in real dollars probably making the least money of any generation in 40, 50, 60 years, uh, 
but also a, gen- a generation that sees itself at the cusp of what seems to be a uh, climate crisis and perceives that there is no response from either markets or politics to this crisis that is commensurate with the crisis has uh, the capacity, I think, of companies to simply motivate individuals rather than, let's say, individuals have to work, so they have to go to work, so they have to do whatever they can find. But to really motivate them to actually sort of like share the ethos of the company is more difficult. Uh, I think we are more cynical in that sense. I think the way we relate to work, the companies tend to be more cynical in general as a as a subset of 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 uh of individuals and so there is a limitation but nonetheless there is a functional sense in which any narrative that you produce has to be in a sense uh be able to stand scrutiny in not only those three dimensions but it must it and only in that way can it be effective can it really kind of tap into a motivational structure uh or it must produce new uh new perspectives on the three dimensions in order to really tap into a motivational structure and get people to kind of uh, forego their purely self-interested orientation to kind of collaborate for a larger project. And I think there were times in the industrial revolution periods where people went to work and it sucked, but they made a decent wage and that was it. And now it's, you know, we're kind of out of that Fortis type economy where you don't really expect to get a, the wage itself isn't compelling, isn't, isn't a compelling reason enough to get up in the morning and go to work. So companies have to really invest in the change management and strategic communications to come up with ways to align their stories to the experiences of their stakeholders so they can provide something else, something symbolic that is going to resonate with them and help fill the gap so they can continue to incentivize performance and attract, reliably attract good labor. Yeah. And it's already, I think this, I think you're, I think uh, you're right. This is something that the companies are forced to do and that they are doing quite a lot, right? Um, That they're seeing themselves very much, Having to do, or they at least have to tap into this notion that uh, of this self-presentation identity of uh, maybe neoliberal identity of the of the meritocratic notion of the individual who works hard and gets ahead. Uh, so continually to present, let's say, the idea of working at a company as a kind of opportunity through which one can advance, right? Even if at the end of the day, empirically, it might not be the case. Uh, I don't know how many workplaces you've been in, Jason, where that's the case, but where, you know, it's presented as kind of like, oh, you know, there's all these opportunities to advance, but then you get there and you realize it's, there's really nothing to do <laughs> or nowhere much to go or that you'd want to go. Don't, um, don't get me started on the proposal writing field <laughs> where you write one proposal and then you write another and you do it right. perpetually until you die. Right, right. But I mean, that's central to the way our, you could say almost our political economic system works now, right? This deeply tapping into this idea that we are all um, sort of like, I mean, I definitely can remember people I've met, particularly in the D.C. metro area, who 
who are like uh, very oriented to success in a way that uh, sometimes seems disconnected from exactly what they do. It's just a matter of like doing something and kind of uh, getting ahead somehow. Uh, right. Well, there's, there's a power component too, right? Especially in the DC area. It's not just the yeah. money that people are looking for, but they're looking for status and influence and uh, authority. Um, yeah. You know, that that will exist in certain industries and, and the political field. Um, and, and those organizations can capitalize on that to make their stakeholders uh, work harder. And there's definitely a meritocracy surrounding uh, that kind of work. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's uh, that's a, the, the DC, the Washington DC metro area is a unique example of a place where uh, work life has a very unique culture around it. Um, and it taps into a specific orientation. But uh, generally, and particularly in this COVID moment, maybe to wrap up uh, where we started, I think we're going to see... It's interesting to see how how <laughs> how we're going to be able to maintain this balance between telling people that they should work when uh, when when there seems to be no general plan for keeping them safe. And yet there's this, we've seen almost this, and sorry to get political at the end here, but we've seen this almost grotesque sort of like hyper uh, neoliberal ideology, theological discourse arise, which says, well, it doesn't matter how many people will lose uh, to COVID. This disease, this uh, solution is worse than the disease and we can't, we need to open the economy at all costs. As if there were no other options, right? It's either close the economy and just everything come to a standstill or open the economy and it doesn't matter how many people lose their lives because we need to keep, you know, because we need to keep working and producing and consuming. Uh, I think that's something really, it it reflects the strength of an ideological framework uh, when there, people can't see alternatives, when they're, they see, of course, they're seeing what's happening right now, mass unemployment, company shutting down and they say well this is worse than the disease who cares if people die I'm, everyone's gonna lose their jobs gonna look there you know the fact of the matter is uh i'm not we could we could go on and let the, about this but it seems to me that it seems like people are have earned a lot of people or certain people are incapable of imagining that there could be another way of responding to the problem which would both take care of people's needs and not force them to go out and you know and put their lives at risk um, take care of their material basic needs and not force them to do that. But I think we're so entrenched in the current framework that we we have a hard time thinking of institutional innovation beyond let's uh, beyond some very basic models from the 20th century. Uh, we can't think, it's almost like we can't think beyond those. Like we're still stuck in a Cold War frame and we can only imagine capitalism, communism. Uh, we can't think outside of sort of state central planning and and kind of like pure free market or something. Even the reality has always been more messy than that. And there have been plenty of of other kind of models that we could tap into and reconfigure and rethink. Uh, but that's just that's just one example of ideology, I think. And it and it taps into this question of like what narratives are are firms going to tap into to actually <laughs> get people motivated in this crisis situation to kind of want to go to work.
Yeah. As horrible as coronavirus is, I think we have uh, an opportunity here to tamp things down and do some reflection and hopefully come out of this uh, more thoughtful and better equipped to manage the challenges of the future, like sustainability and climate change. And, you know, even even something that that might seem trite in comparison, but managing work life balance. And do we really need to be in the office every week? In some industries, we can be, in fact, far more productive working in digital environments from home. We're learning that now. So I think uh, we're going to see a lot of changes and hopefully we'll see some positive changes uh, coming out of this otherwise less than ideal situation. Right. Yeah. I am, as always, hopeful but pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. Especially in the short term, but uh, we will see what happens, Mr. Jason, and I'm sure we'll discuss it here. Yes, I'm sure we will. And I think uh, we about covered it. So, yeah. um, awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, uh, for tuning in. And uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I think it was a fairly interdisciplinary conversation. We covered um, social movements, radicalization, security policy, and um, organizational psychology. So I think uh, it was kind of an interesting a melding of many different uh, worlds. So hopefully you got something out of it. Yeah. Another uh, example of a good panoptic conversation. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Well... Again, thank you everyone for tuning in. Please remember to uh, follow us on Instagram and or Twitter so uh, we can get information to you. Please remember to send us your stories and uh, we'll feature you. Uh, even anonymous is fine. We'll feature you on the show and, and hopefully do a fun segment. And if you have any other ideas on how we can do some fun things to interact with the uh, with you all a little bit more, um, that would be awesome because we certainly want to, we're seeing our audience grow uh, each week and we want to do things for you to make sure that we're addressing things that you're interested in and that uh, everyone's having fun with us and learning, right? So Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, please, anybody who wants to, we look forward to hearing your contributions. Awesome. All right, well, um, we'll uh, talk to uh, everyone next time. Thanks, Juan Pablo. Thanks, Jason. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment. Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.